evening. As you can see, our text is on the board. We're going to be studying from Matthew 12, verses 43 through 45. You'll take your Bibles and turn there. The scripture says there, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he is walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Now this is a familiar passage, I'm sure, with most of us that are here this evening. We've heard this taught, and we've heard many applications to it. Jesus teaches a parable. I uh, have always enjoyed immensely Jesus teaching in parables because he takes commonplace things and then he makes application that are true throughout history and throughout time. Uh, a parable, whether or not it is uh, actually happened, as in Luke 16 where Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus, even though that may not have actually happened, some people would argue whether that parable is a parable or a true story. And in this case, whether or not it actually happened or not is really not a question and not an issue. Because whether it happened or not, we know that Jesus teaches truth. And we know that whatever he teaches carries forth principles that you and I can make application in our life and we can learn and we can grow more like him. So Jesus tells us about this man uh, that we might say was demon-possessed. And of course, the question would always come up, what about demon possession? Is Jesus teaching us today that there is demon possession? And what say you? We see so much wickedness in the world today, it makes you wonder and it makes you question whether or not demon possession actually occurs. I want to uh, present to you this evening for thought that demon possession does not occur today. And the reason why I believe that it does not occur, and the primary reason I believe it does not occur, is because of what Jesus said in Matthew 28, where Jesus said, All power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, prior to his suffering and his death and his resurrection, demon possession, we know, did occur. And Jesus may be telling this story and this parable in relation to what has happened in the past. And certainly those that were hearing Jesus speak that day could certainly relate to it. Many of them might have even seen Jesus cast out demons. Jesus could go up to a demon-possessed man and automatically the demons in hell would have to give way to him and obey him. But today... We don't live in a time where demon possession occurs. Now, I would also present to you that Satan has been around for a long time. And he knows what makes you tick. And he knows what you like. And he knows your temptations. And he knows what to pre present to you. And certainly, we have a problem with evil in our presence today, and there is evil in the world today, and you and I are afflicted with evil. Now, I don't believe that Satan has any power over you except what you give him. 
And I believe that when you give sway to Satan's temptations, then you are giving him power. I don't believe Satan is omniscient. I don't believe he's omnipresent. I don't believe he's God. I believe that many times we give him too much credit. Satan does not have all of these powers. God is, has the power. Jesus is Lord. He has the power. However, you have free choice and you have uh, the ability to make choices that would give Satan power in your life. And the evil influence and the evil presence of this world certainly afflicts us. So therefore, with those thoughts in mind, let's look at this parable and understanding that you and I are afflicted too with evil. And that you and I uh, are faced with decisions every day. Now, I believe that you started making decisions as a small child. I believe that some of these decisions and some of the habits that you chose to pick up in your life uh, could be equated to uh, evil things. And they become a part of your life. And they, they may fill your house. Some people have picked up so many bad uh, decisions and made so many bad decisions, they have no earthly idea how to unravel the mess. And the more they try to unravel the mess, the more difficult it becomes to them. And then it, eventually, with a lot of people in their life, they just throw up their hands and they say, I give up. I can't clean my life up. I don't know what to do. So Jesus tells us a parable about a man who ended up with seven other spirits more wicked than himself. He cleans and garnishes his house. Now, certainly we understand the application that Jesus is making in this parable to us. His house is his life. And how he's cleaning his life up. And trying to make a reformation in his life. And reform his old habits. And, get, and sweep everything out. But this man failed that Jesus tells us about. He ended up with seven other demons more wicked than himself. Why failure? Why couldn't he be successful with it, with reforming his life? And why can't you? Have you ever had a habit that you tried to break? And you've seen how difficult it is to break that habit? I sat in a, uh, a session one time with a counselor that was, was a professional uh, counselor. And he told me, he said, habits are like this. He said, if you come into this room and he said, you have a habit, he said, of patting your foot. And some people do. They pat their foot when they get nervous or whatever. And he said, if I told you, you better quit patting your foot. And he said, you try. And the next thing you know, that habit picks up again and you start patting your foot. He said, even though it's so easy to pick up a habit like that, and, we, and, and that's something simple, and maybe you have little uh, twitches that you would like to quit doing, and you've tried, but it's very difficult. Now, let's imagine that these twitches are not just twitches, but they're sins. They're, they're a lot worse. And you picked them up in your life. I want to tell you, young people, listen to me a minute. What you're picking up right now in your life, you could very possibly carry them with you for the rest of your life. 
and be fighting them for the rest of your life and things that would cause you problem after problem after problem. It's that easily done. But you and I are not indifferent to evil in this world. We know that it exists. All we have to do is turn on the TV. That's all we have to do. There's never a day goes by that I don't, if I look on the internet and, I look, and I've checked local news stories back home while I've been here in Amarillo, and there's not a day goes by that evil it does not blurt out at me. Here I am. Look at me. I'm evil. We know evil exists. Furthermore, we know that evil, sin, exists in our own life. There's things that we would like to get rid of. Things that we picked up many of us years ago. But we have a hard time. Romans 7 verses 15 and 18 says, For that which I do, I allow not. For, that, for what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. You know, Paul is almost saying and is saying, this sin has taken on a character in my life. Why it's become a part of me, it's attached itself to me. And these things that I'm fighting, I can't, I can't take victory over them. Paul is saying he's having these problems. I won't ask you, where does that place us? Paul continues, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Now this passage is read oftentimes. And I can't ever read it without feeling a pang of my own failure. Without understanding that if the Apostle Paul felt failure in his life and understood failure in his life, I know that there's failure in my life too. And some of these things that I picked up, why it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. But have you ever noticed someone who has uh, chosen a life of sin in some area? And maybe you... And then that attribute comes almost to the point where it defines who you are. Why well, we've seen addictions carried out to that level. The alcoholic. Alcohol defines his life. The drug addict. Drugs define their life. The sexually impure. Those actions become a definition of their life. I knew a man who was addicted to impure actions of a sexual nature. And I told him and I asked him, I said, why don't you just stop? You know better than this. Why don't you just quit it? I was 18 years old at the time. It made sense to me. Why don't you just quit it? He was quite a bit older and he said, Mark, I can't quit. He didn't think he could. He was addicted. It had become a part of his life that started to define him and define who he was. I don't want any young person to ever get in their life 
where these sins that they pick up and these attributes of sin become a definition of who you are. However, you and I know that sin exists and we know that within ourselves, within us, in our power alone, we fail. Try as we may, we fail. Try as we may, we still find ourselves still fighting the same old stuff year in and year out, day in and day out. Romans 8 and 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. This carnal mind, and as we feed this carnal mind, it becomes superlative in our life and it becomes not subject and it is incapable of obeying the laws of God and being subject to them. So Paul certainly understood this battle. We understand the battle. No matter how old you are or how young you are, you understand. This man did not fail because he had a lack of desire and effort. A lot of people do fail because of that in their life and many different things. They simply don't want to get rid of the evil in their life. They like it. Why sin is pleasurable. If, if it wasn't pleasurable, you wouldn't do it. <laughs> But it just doesn't last long. And the heartache that comes from it, well, we know, don't we? But some people just like the sin in their life, so they, fo they won't put forth any effort to try to clean their life up and to try to have a different life because they like what they're doing. They won't always like it, but they like it now. And I hope I'm not talking to anybody like that this evening. I hope that I'm talking to people, and I believe I am because I believe that's why you're here. Because you want to have a better life, and you want to be more presentable to God than what you are right now. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 7, verse 25, So then with me I mind myself serve the law. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. We want to be successful with this battle of sin in our life. I believe this man was a failure because he imposed the wrong methodology. And I believe a lot of people are failures with the reformation, if you will, of their life, and they want to reform their life, and they'll pick up one thing and then end up with, or lose one thing and end up with, uh, worse, with worse vices and worse sins because they impose the wrong methodology. Our God is a God of order. He's always instituted order and method. You and I worship because, the way that we do because God imposes method upon us. God imposed a method upon the creation of the world. He imposed a, me, a, a, a method upon the transportation or the teaching of His Word. When we do away with method, then we do away with a God of order. 
God is a God of order. And, it, it, and it's in order in everything that we do. Especially overcoming sin in our life. 1 Chronicles 15 and 13 The scripture there reads, For because ye did it not after the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. You and I need to be concerned with God's method and God's order. This applies to all aspects of our life, not just the worship service, But the way that we live every day, after all, as I said earlier in the week, the Christian life is not something you do, it's something you are. It's someone you are. So therefore, we must be a person who has a mind to God's order and seeks after God's order and seeks doing his order. The methodology that this man imposed in his life that swept and garnished his house, that made all of the effort to decorate up and to clean his life up, really instituted the order of being negatively good. A lot of people want to do that. You want to be negatively good. Now, I hope this doesn't surprise anybody. And I hope, I don't think it will, but I don't drink. But because I don't drink, doesn't make me a Christian. There's a lot of things we don't do, and we're not guilty of, but simply because we are negative on those things, doesn't make us positive in being the person that we need to be. I believe that emptiness of evil, no matter how complete it is, is not goodness. I can deny myself of many, many things, but the simple fact of denial doesn't make me a godly man. It may offer some improvement in my life to some extent, but it's not going to necessarily make me a saint. Somewhere along the way, a lot of people have gotten the idea if they don't do certain sins and they will catalog those sins, then automatically they've grown wings. They think that's a natural result. I want to present to you a, uh, the, the, the tares in the wheat for a minute. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but think about this. The scripture teaches that a man goes out, his servants go out into the field, and there in the, in the field they find tares growing in the wheat. Now, tares growing in the wheat, as uh, hopefully you know, was a uh, stalk that bore no fruit. And it was planted in this field. And they come back and they say, suppose an enemy hath done this. And the servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest that ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Now, the logic is this, and it makes perfectly good sense to us, is if I've got something bad going on, the best thing I can do is just stop it. Just stop it. 
And I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you for a moment that you don't need to stop doing some things and living and thinking the way that you think in, in some areas of your life. We know that we need to stop. But simply being negatively good will not make us and get us where we need to be. There's a man back, there was a man back home. He, was, he died when I was a boy. But there were some characters in my neighborhood in the country. And there was two particular characters that I always found intriguing. They were good, decent men. And the, uh, there was nothing wrong with them whatsoever. As far as the way they lived or, or anything like that, they were good neighbors. They were, they were the type of people that you, you know, just salt of the earth. Both of them were farmers. And they tried to feed their family. One of, one of the men, he didn't have any children to speak. Uh, I don't think he had a child at all. The other man had about eight or nine kids. And the man who had eight or nine kids, he was trying to feed his family by, by way of farming. The man who had only uh, uh, just, just himself, I honestly think he was an old bachelor. He too tried to feed himself by farming and he had an equally hard time. He, uh, this man, and his name was uh, uh, Mr. Hollingsworth. Mr. Hollingsworth, every two to three years, would pull up every fence post on his farm. Every one of them. Leave the hole there, turn the fence post over, put it back in the ground. He didn't grow a lot of stuff. He was too busy fencing. His idea was is that if I pull these fence posts up, turn them over, they won't rot out. He worked hard, but it didn't amount to much. He even had a hard time supporting himself. People in the community had to help him a lot of times. Needless to say, his farming practices wasn't that great. And he suffered for it. He couldn't help it. He was a good man. The other man was akin to him. One day when I come home from school, he was out, and he was my neighbor. He was our neighbor. He lived up the road from us. We lived in, on a gravel road out in the country, and uh, uh, the school bus come by there, and uh, his name was Mr. Warren. Mr. Warren was out in the field. He was out in the middle of this big field. And that wouldn't be a big field for you guys, but it's a big field for us. 40, 50 acre field. He's out in the middle of it. It was a 100 degree day. It's in the fall of the year, and it was a 100 degree day, and he was out there. And he was working. And I mean, he was working hard. He was pulling weeds. He was going at it with everything that he had. He had a hoe, he had his hands, and he was getting rid of those weeds. And Mr. Warren would tell my daddy, so my dad tells me, he'd say, Mr. Parkhurst, he said, I just hate that filth. Just hate that filth. Well, who don't? <laughs> well, what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with getting out there and getting rid of that filth, is there? You like the filth in your life? I don't like the filth in my life. What's wrong with me getting rid of it? Nothing. Not a thing in the world. But it's, 
The methodology that God would insist upon you using is not necessarily the methodology that Mr. Warren applied in his farming practices, and I'll tell you why. Because Mr. Warren did not have a thing growing in that field. Not a thing. There was not a crop there. All that was there was weeds. And if he had been successful in that 50-acre field, if he had have gotten rid of all the filth, I'll tell you what he would have had. He would have had a barren field. And there would have been no fruit rendered in that field whatsoever. Now you and I can understand real quickly that in farming practices that would never work. You've got to be able to grow something. You've got to be able to produce something. But if you were capable of completely reforming your life and getting rid of everything that is wrong, what would you have if you didn't put something there growing and flourishing and producing for God? Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26 says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of reward. Renunciation, if it's a means to an end, is, is a means to an end. That's all it is. If we go back to Moses and we see verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. What did he do? Moses said no to something, but simply saying no is not enough. We must say yes to something. You could clean up your life entirely, but if you don't say yes to God, which in, uh, just for the record, you cannot clean up your life entirely. You could work till you die and you're still going to have these tares growing in the wheat. God's going to have to get rid of those and he will. But if that's all you did was work like Mr. Warren or Mr. Hollingsworth, you could be busy and you could be stirring up a lot of dust. And to a lot of people, if they didn't understand what you were doing, they'd say, those are the hardest working people I've ever seen in my life. And a lot of people want to approach church that way. They want to approach their congregation that way. Instead of building up, instead of that, they want to tear down. And you and I must not be people who are destructive, but we need to be constructing something and building up. Renunciation is simply a means to an end, that's all. Ephesians 5.18 says this, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Now that's a commandment. Don't get drunk. That's a plain commandment. But you know there's a positive commandment with that too. Do you know what it is? Some of you are shaking your head, some of you are not. You know what it is? We're, we're commanded not to get drunk but we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Simply 
Saying no to something is not enough. We must be filled with something. Every decision, every decision that you make carries two consequences. If I say yes to something, that means I am saying no to something and vice versa. If I say no to something, I'm saying yes to something at the same time. I want to tell you, if you say no to God, you know what you're doing? You're saying yes to the devil. That's what you're doing. When we say, I'll do it later, you know what we're doing? We're saying no. We postpone and we put off. Have you ever seen somebody that says they're going to get their education in the future? A lot of people never do. Because what they're doing is they're saying no in the present. All that you and I have is the present. That's all we have. There's a man that I uh, admire a great deal in Thomaston, Georgia, a member of the church down there, and he's an elderly man, and he's been working in the church in that area for some years. And his work is of a local nature in the local congregation, but he works, and he's retired, and he spends his time working in the church as a retired individual from secular work. He tells me, he said, uh, a lot of people will tell me that they're going to go to work in the church when they retire. And he said, I tell them that if you're not doing it now, you won't do it then. And I say amen to that. If you're saying no to something right now, you're saying yes to something also. And the time for us to say yes to God is right now. Because we don't have tomorrow. Renunciation is simply a means to an end. And after all, emptiness in itself is sin. Nowhere in the scripture do we find that to be barren is righteousness. James 4 and 17 puts it this way, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Emptiness in itself is sin. Luke 18 and 11 says, Speaking of the Pharisees, and the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and so on and so forth. Naming off all of these and cataloging these sins that he was not guilty of and pointing at an individual that he thought was more guilty, and in turn, Jesus said, this man receives the greater condemnation. The man who smote himself on the breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Saying yes to God was the man who went home that day justified. Look at all the parables of judgment. And this is not all of them by any means, but this is a, uh, an example of the parables of judgment that Jesus taught. The parables of judgment like the fig tree in Luke 13. Why, the problem with that fig tree was that it was barren. It, was, it wasn't producing any fruit. Emptiness in itself is sin. The ten virgins, the five wise and the five foolish. The five foolish, what was their problem? They had no oil. Everything else they had in common. And the parable of the talents. One was given one, one was given two, and one was given five. And when the redemption day came and the day of reckoning came, 
Who received the condemnation and the judgment? It was the man who came back barren with the same thing that God gave him. The one man buried his talent. Simply for us to renounce evil in our life does not make us holy. God's plan for the individual is this. When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want to tell you something. The cure for sickness is health. Death has never cured any sickness. We want health. And salvation means health. When we're baptized, we die to the old man, but we're, we're not left in that grave. <laughs> Just killing us is not enough. We need to be resurrected. The cure for sickness is health. Death never cured anybody. The resurrection and raised to walk in a new life. That's what we need. We need the new life. And you and I might could die to our old life in some respects, but if we never participate in that resurrection and have the new life, we're not cured. Jesus came that we might have health. Salvation literally means health. I don't know how many of you have read back on some of the historical accounts of this country and the way that things operated, but there was a time... And uh, uh, in medical history, and Kerry might could, he probably know more about this than me, but I've read this much, and Sean's nurse, but uh, that they used to bleed people. <laughs> well, they did. George Washington, I read, was bled three times by a doctor by the name of Dr. Crank. Go figure. <laughs> Now we laugh and we think about that. Can you imagine going to a doctor today in our technology and our knowledge that we have and the doctor say, well, I think we just need to bleed that poison out of you. You, you want to give him your arm? I wouldn't. I'd go find me another doctor. That's what they did with George Washington. I think he was bled three or four times before he finally said, don't bleed me anymore, let me die. That was a common practice. The idea was this. And in some cases, I mean, it, it would make sense if you, if, if you didn't know God's methodology. A lot of people don't. But it makes sense. Let's get the disease out of your body. That was the idea. Today... What little I know about medicine, they try to build your body up. They don't try to tear it down. They want it built up and they want strength. The people in the medical profession, they spend a great deal of time. They'll put you in uh, the proper nutrition. They'll make sure that you've got things going in your body that will strengthen your body. Everything that your body needs, if you're sick, they want to build you up. Well, why would we take our own personal life of our battle over sin and try to apply any different methodology than what the Lord told us that he came for. The Lord said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. 
God's plan for the church is the same plan, I believe, as it is for the individual. Because after all, if we're individuals and the church exists on the individual level, on the local level, and on the universal level. On the local level, a congregation like this, God wants us to be built up and to be strengthened. And I want to tell you, and I put this up here because I think that we need to practice this in our life and we, try, and, and we need to make application. Where Christ is preached, false doctrine loses its power and its idols crumble. It'll happen every time. If you and I preach anything else other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the idols might overtake us. But if we'll stay true to the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Him being our Savior and our hope, the same thing that happened in Acts 17, that is the practice that you and I need to place in our life. Are you familiar with Acts 17? The scripture says there in Acts 17 that Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. And he said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. When I was a kid, I didn't understand what the superstitious meant. And there may be some people here this evening do not understand what the superstitious means. Superstitious there literally means religious. I thought for a long time that Paul was deriding those men of Athens and saying, you're too superstitious. Man, quit being so superstitious. But you know what he was saying? He was saying, I perceive that in all things you also are religious. He wasn't deriding them. He was trying to build them up. He says, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions. Notice how he used that phrase. He didn't call it what it would be distasteful to them. He said, your devotions. I came upon an altar with this inscription to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. Now if we start imposing this method in our own lives and in the work of the church here, now, we can go out and fight false doctrine and face it down and all that, and I believe that we have the power to do that, and I certainly think the Apostle Paul had the power to do that, and I think the Word will take care of all of that. But if we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it has the same effect and it has the better effect because it builds up and it strengthens and it empowers people. He continues in verse 24, God that made the world... And all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. What's Paul preaching here? He's preaching who God is. He's preaching him as supreme. His focus is not on their devotions and their unknown God. He's saying, let me tell you about God. And if you and I, in our own life, if we'll start focusing on Christ, you've got problems in your life? I guarantee you, you do, because you're a human being. I've got problems too. I'm no different. 
We all have a sin that doth so easily beset us. We have weights that hold us back, and these weights are sin. We have these things, how do we overcome them? Now, I can place all of my attention on those, and certainly these things need to be stopped, and they must be stopped. However, the power to overcome is found in Christ and only in Him. And when I focus my life on serving Christ and serving His church, the idols crumble out of my life. And they'll fall to the ground. So the question then, the question is not simply what we will renounce. Not simply what we will call sin and not simply what we'll say no to. But the question is what will we become? Paul said in Romans 8, 29, For whom he did foreknow, them he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Will you become like Christ? Will you put on Christ as in Galatians 3? Will you serve Him instead of serve the idols? The question is, is not what you will renounce, but what will you become? The invitation for you tonight is to come and walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Say yes to God. Say yes to Him. Say yes to Christ. Make this practice every day in your life as you work, as you go to school. No matter what you do, Say yes to Christ. Focus on Him. Walk in the Spirit. And then you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. The lesson is yours. If you're here this evening and you are subject to the gospel, the invitation for you is to come repenting of your sins. This repentance, I believe, in application to this lesson is that you stop and you make a decision. The road that you're traveling on in life, if it's a road that is leading away from Christ, many of the decisions that you've made in the past you can't undo. They are simply impossible. But what you can do is stop and go another road. Go the road of Christ. Say no so that you might say yes. Yes to Christ. If you're here and you've need Christ in your life. Say yes to Him. Come take a seat on the front and we'll ask you to make that good confession that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then we'll baptize you for the remission of your sins. In this baptism, you're not left in this watery grave. The old man dies, but the new man arises. We say no to sin so that we might have this new life, so that we might say yes to Christ. If you're here and you would desire the prayers of the church to help you in any way, won't you come as together we stand and sing?